doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls, Dolls and Doom. Doom. Thanks again for being so patient, listeners. I was sick, and then my whole family got sick, and so we're not playing. <laughs> when we get sick, we stay home. So we are back. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be back to our regular schedule. On the regular. Yeah. <laughs> 2022 is not starting off so well it's for us. Not. And one, once again, a reminder, look for us on Mondays. Yes, Mondays are a new day. Well, while I was home, sick in bed, I was able to watch some really, really good TV, Paula. Awesome. Yeah, some specifically, I watched some really good documentaries. And a couple of them took me down a bit of a rabbit hole. So one of the documentaries that I discovered was called Missing 411. Have you heard of it? I don't think so. Okay, so the films are actually based on a book series by author David Polites. And David is a former police officer who now works as an investigator and a writer who's known primarily for his books dedicated to proving the reality of Bigfoot. Also, he is known for establishing the missing 411 conspiracy, which we're going to talk about today. I am all about the existence of Bigfoot and Loch Ness (laughs) and extraterrestrials. To me, it's just awesome to think that there are creatures that we have yet to discover. I think anything is possible. Yeah, it's just fun to me to think about. Today's story isn't directly related to any of those things. However, some of those creatures do come up in potential theories on a couple of today's cases. So Missing 411 documents cases of people who have gone missing in national parks and forests whose cases are unusual and mysterious, and they often share unexplainable similarities with each other. So in simple terms, hundreds of people vanish from national parks and forests every year under unusual circumstances, and it's almost as if many of them were literally just like plucked off the face of the earth. There are thousands of these cases, but today I'm going to focus on the stories of some of the children who went missing under these strange circumstances. So there's over 400 national parks in the U.S. National Park Service. There's a director with headquarters in Washington, D.C., and then under that there are different regions that spread all across the country. And the National Park Service, despite the hundreds of people that go missing, does not keep a central list of people who go missing in their parks. Now, there have been lots of petitions for a centralized national database in which all missing persons are accounted for. And some parks do keep records, but then again, a lot don't. And there is no national requirement to keep a database. So individuals who are pro-keeping this list argue that if there was one centralized database, then when someone went missing, we could go back and refer to previous searches, figure out what we did right, what did we do wrong, and then use that information to save valuable time and hopefully bring the missing person home alive. In the event where people went missing from a place where someone had gone missing previously, and that is one of those similarities that's often seen in these cases, they often go missing in clusters in certain areas. But in those cases, the search leader could then use data from previous searches of that exact area. So it's argued that if park authorities were open with the amount of people who went missing each year, then people who do like to spend time in these areas would at least do so knowing the risk. 
Now, the makers of this Missing 411 documentary did request a list of missing people from the National Park Service, but they were told that no such list existed, and to deliver one would cost $1.4 million. Holy cow. Let me tell you about a few of these cases. Okay. So the first is Bobby Bizup, and he went missing on August 15th, 1958, in Rocky Mountain National Park, and he was 10 years old. He was a guest at Camp St. Mallow, which is a Catholic boys' camp, and it's home of St. Catherine's Chapel, which, side note, is probably the prettiest church I've ever seen. It just, like, sits on this rock surrounded by the Rocky Mountains in the middle of the wilderness. Oh, my gosh. It was gorgeous. Sounds like it. Yes. And hundreds of children come stay at this gorgeous camp each summer. And while they're there, they do a lot of outdoor activities. I mean, they're in the Rocky Mountains, after all. Absolutely. They fish. They go on weekly hikes with varying degrees of difficulty, ranging from easy, medium, to hard. So August 15th, 1958, it's a warm day. Bobby's one of the campers here. Now, Bobby's partially deaf, and he does wear a hearing aid. Bobby really liked to fish. So it was about 6 p.m., and Bobby was out fishing in a little creek on the property when a counselor happened to come by and told him, hey, Bobby, it's dinner time. Now, Bobby acknowledged the counselor and started to follow him back to camp. The counselor walked for a minute or so and then turned around, and Bobby, he was gone. He was nowhere to be seen. So he looks around for a minute, still can't find Bobby's. So immediately, a formal search is launched. Now, this camp is on the border of Rocky Mountain National Park, and right there is a mountain called Mount Meeker. So over 400 volunteers start covering this area. And one of the things that confused officials right away was the fact that Bobby got lost in the first place. First of all, he was following a counselor, right? Right. So... Why was he getting lost? He was following somebody. But even if that counselor had never come by, the way back to camp was straight downhill on a very defined trail. But to go anywhere else would require going through thick woods or up the side of a mountain. So literally, the only path is back to the camp. So over the next several days, as searchers continued with their efforts, the Civil Air Patrol dropped hundreds of flyers into the woods that had a note from Bobby's parents saying that they loved him and needed him to come home. Oh, dagger to the heart. I know. I thought, oh my gosh, that's amazing though. Like Mm -hmm. what a thing to do. I don't know that I would have thought of that. That's so sweet. Unfortunately, after nine days of looking, the formal search was terminated on August 25th. But as often happens, several people who were local to the area kept looking on their own, and that included three of the camp counselors who were so determined to find Bobby that they came back the following year to keep looking for any sign of him. And one day that following year, they climbed up Mount Meeker, and there they found a hearing aid, a piece of clothing, and Bobby's remains. Oh my gosh. Now, the remains, along with his items, were found in a ravine on the face of Mount Meeker, just along a creek. The strange thing was this ravine had been searched at least three times the year before. And this is one of those strange things that a lot of these cases have in common. In a lot of these cases, the missing person ends up being discovered in an area that had been extensively searched previously. 
So another common factor is the fact that a lot of the people who disappear in the national parks and forests have a physical impairment, and for Bobby, it was his partial deafness. And then a third similarity that links Bobby's case to many of the others is that the circumstances surrounding his disappearance and later recovery make absolutely no sense. Like I said before, it was really hard to understand how Bobby could have ever gotten lost and ended up on this mountain. The camp was literally the only place he could have gone to that would have been an easy journey. To this day, we still don't know the exact circumstances that led to Bobby's death. Okay, so do you want to know my theory? Yes. Someone or something was hiding in the brush, saw him walk by, and grabbed him. Okay. A person or an animal. And took him up to the mountain? Right. Okay. What are your thoughts on the fact that the area where he was found had been searched several times? I would say either the bones were dragged by an animal or... No, because he had a hearing aid and that was there. I, I feel like it was placed. Okay. That's the thing with a lot of these cases. The first time I listened to it, I was like, oh, well, he just fell in the river or right. he did this. Or, or he, he tripped and an animal came and grabbed him. Right. But then when you really start looking at all of the different pieces... It's like, but wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and an animal wouldn't go place his hearing aid next to his remains to in a him. piece of clothing. Right, that's where it gets weird. Yeah. You'll see, we'll keep running into these questions as we talk about these different cases. Okay. Okay, so this next story is Jared Adadero. And I have to tell you, this particular case breaks my heart. Uh-oh. Like, extra. Probably partially because... He's the cutest little thing, and he reminds me so much of my son. When I was watching this documentary, they were interviewing his dad, and man, listening to his dad, you could just tell that he was a really, really good dad. He really loved his kids. He was such a nice person. And so this one really tugged at my heartstrings. So Jared disappeared on October 2nd, 1999, in the Comanche Peak Wilderness, which is located in the Colorado Mountains. And Jared was three years old. Jared lived with his dad and his sister, who was six years old, and they spent their lives at the Poudreau Canyon Resort, which was a 10-acre resort, and Jared's dad owned a store right there by this resort, and this was his bread and butter, this store. He had one other employee who helped him, but he described his life as being up at six every day and at the store, and then they didn't close until 11 p.m., And he said he felt really lucky because he was able to bring his kids to work with him. And he really appreciated that time with his family. And it really was like a family environment. It was just a great place to raise his family. So in the fall of 1999, a Christian singles group was staying at the lodge. And they wanted to take a day trip to a trout farm that was about a mile and a half away from the resort. And Jared's dad said that he knew a few of these campers pretty well. And he trusted them. So when his daughter wanted to go with them to the trout farm, he told her she could go. But of course, if big sister gets to go, then little brother wants to go too. Of course. (laughs) Jared's dad begrudgingly told three-year-old Jared he could go too. He says he remembered helping Jared put his shoes on, and Jared hated to have his shoes tied. (laughs) So his dad didn't tie his shoes. But he did make him wear a jacket. He remembers putting a beige jacket on him. So the group left. And once en route, they decided that instead of going to the trout farm, they were going to drive 15 miles further up the road to go on a hike at Big South Trailhead. 
Now this trail is moderate. It has lots of ups and downs. Children can go on this trail, but if they do, you really have to hold on to them because there are areas where the ledge is only about two feet wide. And if you were to step off that ledge, you would fall down a hill into a rushing river. So the group parked and started walking. And as large groups do, they started to like spread out, all walking at different paces. And there was one adult that had both kids. And this adult and the children were ahead of the rest of the group. And I'm just assuming it's because, you know, the kids probably ran ahead and the adult had to, like, run to catch up. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing, too. (laughs) People did see Jared running on this trail and just playing and having a good old time. Like kids do. Absolutely. But after a while, the adult who was with him realized that she hadn't seen him in about 20 minutes. Once she realizes that he's been gone, the group starts looking for him. And at one point, they ran into some fishermen who were not in their group. But these fishermen had remembered seeing a little boy alone. And this little boy had come up to them and asked them if there were bears in the area. So they were able to establish through these fishermen a last seen point. Okay. And, you know, a time frame. So at some point, while everyone's looking for Jared, someone drives back to Jared's dad. And what they say to him is that Jared's okay, but they can't find him. And it's not until he's in his truck on the way to go look for his son that he learns that the group had not gone to the fish farm, but to this trailhead instead. And he was pretty upset because this trail's much further away than he'd given permission for his kids to go. And obviously it was a whole different set of circumstances than he had thought it was going to be. Right. He said that during the entire drive to the trailhead, he would beat his chest and scream. He screamed for his son. He screamed for help from God. He said he drove way faster than was safe for anyone to drive to get to this place where his son was last seen. Once he got to the trailhead, he ran up the trail screaming for Jared. And after screaming his name, he would stop and listen. But there was never any response. 65 search and rescue professionals started looking for Jared immediately, and they worked for eight days straight, 24 hours a day. The night searches were, of course, harder, but they did continue looking throughout the night. Canine units were on the scene working. Given the situation, you know, we have a missing three-year-old, so there was lots of media there, along with many, many human searchers. But nothing was found, and nothing was ever found for three and a half years. Then one day, two local hikers decided to travel off the main trail. And they'd hiked this area many times before, being local, and they were also very aware of Jared having gone missing there three years prior. They'd even talked about the fact that this little boy had gone missing. So when they were out on this particular day and suddenly saw a toddler's shoe, they immediately wondered if they had just found Jared. So these hikers said that there was no way a three-year-old could have made it by himself to where the shoe was. They said it was very rough terrain and a struggle to get there even for these two avid hikers. In fact, to get there, they had to go through a rock field, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's just a big field full of rocks. And I would say these rocks were about the size of bowling balls. And they described that in order to travel through this field without twisting you know, any ankle or hurting themselves, they had to move very slowly and carefully, taking it one step at a time. 
Now this rock field is another strange similarity in a lot of these cases because oftentimes people go missing near fields of rocks. Weird. Isn't that weird? Yes. So on top of this mountain, along with Jared's shoes, were his jacket, his pants, one tooth, and his skull cap. (gasps) And they were sitting on top of a log. They showed photos of this in the documentary and his skull. It was, you know, just the very top part, just the cap. And it was upside down and it had like a thin layer of leaves and branches in it. And it just, it literally looked like a little bowl sitting there. Now, when Jared first went missing, canines had alerted in the general direction up the hill. Their first searchers said that they would have most definitely searched that area. So here we are again. Jared's found in an area that's been extensively searched previously. Now, in Jared's case, the general consensus is that a wild cat, such as a mountain lion, had attacked him on the trail and then carried him to the top of the mountain. And authorities say it is possible that the cat had then been scared away by searchers and all of the commotion. So they think that the cat dropped Jared at the top of this mountain and then came back for him later when things quieted down. And at first this seems possible, but then Jared's father brought up several really valid questions. So Jared's clothing was tested by the CBI and on it there was no blood, no DNA, no mountain lion hairs, nothing. Weird. That's really strange, right? Yes. Now mountain lions attack the stomach when they're hunting. So Jared's jacket should have been shredded according to mountain lion experts. But it was in one piece with very, very little damage. And then his shoes were practically pristine. They were white. They were clean. They didn't look like they had been out in the wilderness for three and a half years at all. Hmm. And then on top of just being in good condition, if a mountain lion had dragged Jared to the top of this mountain the way an animal would have had to carry him, his shoes would have been dragging the ground so they should have been scuffed up. Yeah. Or possibly even pulled off of his feet, right? Especially since they weren't tied. Exactly. But his shoes were not scuffed. They were not damaged at all. And his shoes were found right there with his remains. So we know they hadn't fallen off as he was being pulled up this mountain. Now his pants tell a whole different story at first. So just looking at them made my heart stop for a second because they were found inside out with a whole leg missing. The pants were in very poor condition and they were like kind of like a sweatshirt felty type material like that really soft comfy material yeah they were full of holes in addition to the leg being torn off so at first look it's like oh my gosh something attacked him Mm -hmm. but then we find out that bits and pieces of this pant material were found all over the place in bird and rodent nests and because of the type of material animals were able to easily pick it apart And that explains why it was in such poor condition. And to me, it did. It looked like how I would imagine a piece of cloth that had been, like, eaten by moths might look. Just, like, kind of full of little holes. Yeah. So even though it looked like it had, you know, been through the ringer, it didn't necessarily point to an animal attack. And again, no blood, no cat saliva, nothing was found on this clothing. In an effort to make sense of this... One survival expert wrote a report stating that the reason why there was no DNA found on his clothing was because either Jared himself or something else removed his clothing before the attack. Then the mountain lion carried him up the mountain. 
But then why was his clothing found on top of the mountain with his body? Why were his pants found inside out? Mountain lion experts said that mountain lions would not have pulled the pants off that way, and they certainly wouldn't have just left them neatly next to his remains. Exactly. There is still no official conclusion from law enforcement on Jared's case, but it has been established that there were no drag marks, no blood, no evidence of an attack anywhere in this area where his remains had been found. There have only been 14 reported fatal mountain lion attacks in all of the United States and Canada. Only 14 since 1915. Oh my goodness. Now this part really broke my heart. Jared's father actually kept his cranium. Oh my goodness. And he said, I have a hard time comprehending this, quote, that I'm actually sitting here holding my son, but this is what I have left of him, Mm. end quote. Now, Jared's dad doesn't visit the area where Jared went missing very often. He said that before Jared had been found, he actually felt a lot of guilt for not coming up, thinking that maybe Jared was still up there, but that to come back was just too painful. He said the hardest thing he ever had to do was leave the mountain without his son. Yeah, that's that's what I'm picturing, the drive home without him. Ugh. When I hear stories of like parents losing their children mm-hmm. in whatever way, that is always one of the, like the hardest thoughts for me is like how do you drive home with missing one of your it just seems awful now all of these years later jared's dad said that he's finally in a place where he can go to the trail and he can look around and he can see the beauty in the place and when he thinks about his son losing his life there he says you sure picked a beautiful place to hang out he went on to say through tears that he cannot comprehend an animal getting him. It's just too painful. He says he's visualized it many times. His son walking down the trail and a stupid cat jumping him. He says that even though he visualizes it, he never believes it, but he visualizes it because that's what he has been told happened so many times. Now the only memory Jared's sister has of this resort where she spent so much time as a young child is one day, soon after her brother went missing, she remembers hugging her dad while he was kneeling on the ground crying. Oh my gosh. That whole story just wrecked me. Heartbreaking. I would think, and this is just me, that it would be easier for me to take an animal taking someone I love as opposed to a person. And see, for me, the thought of an animal literally eating my loved one Mm -hmm. is pretty unsettling oh absolutely i'm not saying it's not that is a very disturbing thought i mean obviously these are all disturbing thoughts right you don't want to have to pick one over the other right the the little boy who was grabbed by the alligator in disney yeah like just thinking about that makes me want to throw up Mm -hmm. just the circumstances around it i don't know i mean obviously they're all horrible but there is something about being attacked by a wild animal that is i find very disturbing but then of course being attacked by a person is very disturbing freezing to death on the side of a mountain is very disturbing like it's all horrible it's It's all all awful there's not one that's better than the other right they're all equally awful oh it's all terrible okay so now i'm going to tell you about a more recent case this is the story of dior Kuntz, and you may have actually heard of this one before this one's actually pretty popular in a lot of true crime communities Dior Kuntz Jr. was two years old, and he went missing on July 10th, 2015. He was camping in a very small town called Lador, 
at Timber Creek Campground in Idaho Falls, Idaho, where the population is literally 105. Oh, wow. Right. It is very remote. Very small. Your cell phones go in and out. To even get to this campground, you have to take a really rocky road that is about seven miles long. And to travel this road safely, you can only drive five miles per hour. Oh, geez. Right? We are talking remote. Now, eventually this road dead ends at Timber Creek Campground, which consists of a picnic table and a fire pit. (laughs) That's it. Okay. Now, right beside this campsite is a steep hill leading to a creek that's about 10 to 20 feet away. And I would say this, like, drop-off is maybe, I'm not good with feet, but I would say maybe 15 to 20 feet drop-off. But it's not straight down. You can walk down the hill. But at the same time, a kid could also fall down the hill and into the creek. This creek is in some places really shallow. In other places, it's a little deeper. It has a swampy, muddy bottom. And every few feet is a downed log or a tree. It's really unmaintained. You know, we're out in the wilderness here. On the other side of this campsite is a large boulder field. So another one of those rock fields. Yeah. And that field goes up a hill before turning into a tree line that then just turns into forest. The Kuntz family arrived to the campground late on July 9th, 2015, and they went straight to bed. It was Dior Sr. and Jessica Mitchell, and those are Dior Jr.'s parents. And then Bob is Jessica's grandpa and his friend Isaac. So Isaac slept in a tent, grandpa was in the camp trailer, and Dior Jr., the baby, Dior Sr., his father, and Jessica, his mother, all slept in the suburban. So the next morning, July 10th, it was a Friday, they woke up and Dior Jr., Dior Sr., and Jessica went back to Lador so that Jessica could get some feminine products. And then they bought some candy for baby Dior. And that's just what I'm going to call him because it's just a couple Dior's. So baby Dior. Is- there you go. <laughs> so while they were gone, Isaac and Bob had been fishing and they'd caught some fish. When the Kuntz family came back, they were curious how they got these big fish out of this little creek. So Dior Sr. and Jessica followed Isaac down to the creek and they invited baby Dior to go with them and he started to follow them. But then as they were walking, he decided he wanted to turn back and stay at the campsite. So he turned around and his mom said, okay, go on back to grandpa. And she just watched him to make sure he was not following her to the creek. And she saw him disappear around the corner and assumed he was with grandpa. So Dior Sr. and Jessica stayed down at the creek for about 10 to 15 minutes. They saw some minnows and they wanted to show baby Dior. So they went back to get him. But they didn't see him. He wasn't there. And when they asked Grandpa Bob, Bob says, oh, I don't know. I haven't seen him for five or ten minutes or so. So they start looking for baby Dior. They can't find him. So after about 15, 20 minutes, Jessica decides we need to call 911. So she was able to call 911 with like one bar. And then Dior Sr. got in his truck, drove down the road to try to get better service. And he also called 911. So by the third night of Dior Jr. missing... More than 10,000 man-hours had already been put into trying to find him. Wow. And 75% of children that age are found within four-tenths of a mile relatively quickly. Right, because they have little legs. They can't get very far. Right. But that's one of the things that was said is you think they can't go very far, but they can actually travel a lot 
faster than people give them credit for. Yeah, because no one's chasing him. They're like, woohoo, I'm free. <laughs> they just, you know, they can just, they move. Yeah. So dogs were used, helicopters using infrared were brought in, highly developed search and rescue teams were brought in. The searchers were instructed to take five steps and then look up, look down, look around, take another five steps, look up, look down, look around. There were searchers on horseback. The creek was searched extensively using chainsaws to break up the fallen trees. They really wanted to make sure he wasn't like stuck anywhere. Yeah, or climbed up something. Right. And got stuck somewhere up. Right. Searchers checked wolf dens. They checked bear dens. They even checked eagle's nests because he was little enough that potentially an eagle could have picked him up. Mm -hmm. This area was known for having bobcats and mountain lions, but everywhere they looked, there was not one trace of baby Dior found. So the sheriff was asked if it was possible that an animal could have gotten him, but yet not even one shred of clothing, not one drop of blood, nothing be left behind. And he said, it's very unlikely. You would think you would find something, but it probably was possible. We know he was wearing camouflage cowboy boots that were a couple of sizes too big for him, and these boots fell off very easily. So it made sense that if something had gotten him, his boots probably would have fallen off and they would have found a boot. But again, they found no trace of him. So authorities start questioning Jessica and Dior Sr., as well as Bob and Isaac. And even Jessica's mother, Trina, looked Jessica in the eye and told her that if she knew anything about where baby Dior might be, she needed to tell her the truth. But Jessica denied knowing anything. So three days after he went missing, Jessica and Dior Sr. left the campground and went to a local news studio where they gave an interview. And during this interview, Jessica was carrying baby Dior's blanket and his teddy bear. Now, almost immediately, the couple were torn apart by the media and the public. So Dior Sr. is like this dynamic personality. He talks a lot. He's loud. Jessica's the opposite. She's super reserved, super quiet, and she came across as really calm. Mm -hmm. Uncaring, even. She did, yes. Have you seen any of the interviews with her? No, but I can just picture the media's response. Yeah. She didn't cry in any of the interviews that I saw of her. She didn't seem like what you would imagine a mother in distress would, you know, seem like. But even the local sheriff said that he was not aware of any handbook that explained how a parent was supposed to act when their child went missing. Exactly. That's a really good point. We're all different. Right. We don't know her temperament. Right. So the family ended up hiring their own PI in an attempt to find Dior Jr. And this PI did some digging into everyone involved, including Bob Isaac and Dior's parents. The PI found that even though they were young, Jessica had had her tubes tied to avoid having any more children. And the PI said that she didn't really have the reputation of enjoying children. She had two older children with her ex-husband, but she did not have primary custody, and instead they would visit her every other weekend. This PI also found several witnesses who said that Jessica would often leave her children in daycare all day and avoid picking them up. Now, when Jessica's grandfather, Bob, was interviewed, he said that he'd never really played with Dior Jr. He was just getting to that age where he was interested in playing. He did say that baby Dior would come over to his house with Jessica and he would try to get candy from Grandpa Bob. Now, when asked if he felt guilty about him going missing, he did say that, sure, he thought about it a bit. 
but he figured everyone who was there felt bad about it. And I think it's important to mention that Bob is on oxygen and was known to have been starting to have some memory issues. Okay. In fact, the entire reason that Dior Jr.'s family was on that camping trip was because Bob took this trip every year and Jessica's mom had asked Jessica to go with him to be there in the event that something happened. Now, Isaac, Bob's friend, is an unusual person. Uh, He's much younger than Bob. I would say he could have been a son. But he described Bob as being a really good friend. Apparently, they both really enjoyed fishing together, and that is why Bob invited him on this camping trip, so that they could fish together. Now, witnesses say that Isaac never actually looked for baby Dior. Isaac did have a prior sex crime conviction, but that was reduced to a misdemeanor. And witnesses also overheard Isaac saying the morning after Dior went missing that that was the best night's sleep he'd had in a long time. Oh my gosh. Now, I don't want to judge, but I will say I didn't get the feeling that he was involved in any way. Okay. I felt like he just didn't get it. He just maybe wasn't affected. I didn't get a guilty vibe. I just thought he's clueless. Mm Mm-hmm. So after a month of Dior being missing, and not even as much as a footprint having been found, rumors started to circulate that Dior was not in those woods, and suspicion turned to local townspeople, as well as Bob Isaac, and of course, the most vicious finger pointing was towards Dior Sr. and Jessica. Now some people say that Dior was never even in the woods, that that was just a cover story because something had happened to him previously, and his parents didn't want it to be discovered. There were also rumors of sex offenders living in the woods, and maybe they found out that there was a toddler nearby and just jumped on the opportunity to abduct him. Facebook groups have been set up where many theories abound, and all updates are immediately posted to these Facebook pages. And of course, on every post, vicious comments are made about the parents being drug dealers or who their sexual partners are. They compare Jessica to Casey Anthony, They call them trash, just mean, mean words. So during the first three months of Dior being missing, Jessica and Dior Sr. made only one media appearance, and their PI thought this was pretty unusual. He knew they were approached by Good Morning America and Nancy Grace, yet they turned both of these appearances down, and that's strange. Most loved ones of missing persons want as much media coverage as possible, keeping their loved ones' faces front and center. I understand the PI thinking that this is weird, but I can also see things from the other side. They're being raked over the coals, and they're mourning the loss of their baby, and everywhere they look, they're being accused of murdering their baby. So I can kind of see why they might be a little camera shy. Yeah, I can too. Now, they did end up allowing an interview for the documentary, and during that interview, they were asked why they turned down all of the media coverage. Dior said it was because everything he said or did was twisted. He couldn't do anything right, so why do anything? And Jessica said it was because they'd been so focused on searching for baby Dior that she didn't want to get distracted by worrying about the media. She only cared about one thing, that was finding her son. Yeah, that makes total sense. It does. So the PI actually ended up withdrawing from the investigation, saying that he believed that they'd lied and misrepresented the truth and failed to aid in finding their son. The FBI got involved about three weeks to a month after baby Dior went missing. Dior Sr.'s truck was swabbed by the FBI, and a lot of people thought that this was going to send Dior's parents into a panic. But instead, 
Jessica and Dior Sr. said that they were very happy that the FBI was involved, they had nothing to hide, and they were hoping that someone could shine some more light on the investigation and provide a next step. Dior Sr. took a lie detector test, and the results were inconclusive pass. The FBI has found nothing to indicate a crime has occurred and will not be getting involved in Dior Jr.'s case. Interesting. All right, so Keith Parkins disappeared on April 10th, 1952 in Ritter, Oregon. He was two years old. Edna, Keith's mother, was visiting her parents in Ritter, Oregon on their cattle farm. Her parents were ranchers and all the neighbors were ranchers also. Edna described Keith as a happy little two-year-old. Now, on this cold April day, Keith and his two older brothers had gone to the barn to see a new calf that had been born. Edna called them home for lunch, and two older boys came home, but baby Keith didn't. When asked, his brother said that Keith had gone around the barn, but they couldn't find him. So, a search started immediately. Now, back then, they didn't have the type of organization that they do today, but they were still pretty good at searching. So all of the searchers stayed within speaking distance of each other, and there were about 200 people out looking for Keith all night. That's a lot. A lot. It was very cold. There were still patches of snow on the ground. Now, searchers were able to find footprints that showed that Keith had traveled through a herd of cattle, and one of the searchers described the distances he traveled as the crow flies. So do you know what that means? Following the pattern of the crows in the sky? Not really, no. Okay. It's the most direct route. You know, if a crow flies from point A to point B, he's going to fly the most direct route. You can't always walk. Right. There might be something in your path that you have to go around. Yeah. Makes sense. Exactly. Keith's footprints were found three miles away as the crow flies. His body was found another five miles away as the crow flies. So he traveled a total of eight miles, but again, that's the most direct route. He couldn't have walked such a direct route, so he actually traveled further, and searchers believe he may have actually traveled as many as 12 miles in 19 hours. Oh my goodness. He was two. And it was cold. Cold. Snow on the ground. Now, when he was found, it was discovered that his clothing had been ripped. It is believed that that happened when he traveled through or under barbed wire fences. Even with a full moon, you could barely see your hand in front of the face. There's no street lights, no city lights, it's just wilderness. So it's completely unknown how a two-year-old could have traveled so far in pitch black and freezing temperatures. He was found on the top of a hill, face down in the snow, with his hat and coat laying on the ground beside him. His father was about 100 yards away, and he was part of the search party, but when he heard the chaos of searchers finding his son, he ran over, he picked him up, and baby Keith was alive. <gasps> wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was not expecting that. I know. Me neither. I audibly gasped when I was watching the documentary. <laughs> I'll bet. Now, at the making of this documentary, Keith was interviewed, and he talked about how every time he would go back to visit his grandparents, some stranger in the town would say, hey, I helped look for you. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I know. And then he would thank them for looking for him. Of course. His mother kept all of the clothing he was wearing that day, and he showed everybody, you know, the little rips in his pants and his little jacket and hat. Now, baby Keith did have some frostbite on his hands and feet. He had some minor scratches on his face, but other than that, he was okay. His parents never made a big deal of him being lost because they didn't want to stress him out. Keith has no memory of the event. 
He never once experienced any nightmares. When he was first found and he was asked how he got the scratches on his face and his hands, he told everyone that he got the scratches from his cat. Now, throughout this documentary, it kept coming up in these cases that there was no explanation for how these kids went missing, how or where they were found, or in the opposite situations, how there was never anything found when something should have been. In Keith's case, the authorities said there was no way that a two-year-old could have traveled such distances in the pitch black, in the freezing temperatures, and then be found alive at the top of a hill. There's absolutely no reasonable explanation for how that happened. One of the canine handlers who looked for Jared told of a time that she'd been called in with her dog to search for a missing toddler in South Dakota. She said that the little girl had wandered off and been missing for three days, and after that amount of time, the odds of finding a child alive in those conditions were not good. She said that she was out there in the forest with her dog, and it was so foggy that she couldn't see more than a couple of feet in front of her. When all of a sudden, her dog let out a weird, creepy howl. The dog was suddenly very frightened. She turned around, and there, walking out of a group of willows in the fog, was a naked toddler. (gasps) The handler said it was like she appeared out of nowhere, and it actually frightened her and the other handler that she was with. After being examined, the most reasonable explanation of how the naked little girl could have survived is that she had probably been curled up with a coyote or some other type of animal that had kept her warm and alive for that length of time. Oh my goodness. So she was like a little adopted cub. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh. It's sweet and creepy at the same time. It's amazing. All right. So the final story I'm going to tell you today is that of Casey Hathaway. Now, this is actually not part of the Missing 411. Every other story I've told you is directly out of Missing 411. This story is not. So Casey Hathaway was a three-year-old little boy who went missing from his own backyard in Craven County, North Carolina. Searchers looked for Casey for several days. Canine units were brought in to help with the search. The terrain was icy and cold, and the temperatures kept dropping. So unfortunately, because of the amount of time he'd been gone and the fact that weather conditions were worsening, the search was starting to look like it was going to have a tragic ending. But then, out of nowhere, a searcher heard what sounded like a tiny little voice cry out. He followed the sounds deep into the woods, past a frozen pond, and there he found tiny little Casey huddled up in a patch of briars. Now Casey was in pretty bad shape. His core temp was way too low. His fingers had frostbite. He was rushed to the hospital where he would be treated. But while he was in the hospital, he told his mother something that would make his disappearance and ultimate recovery even more fascinating. He told her that while he was lost in the woods, a bear had taken care of him. He told everyone who would listen that he had spent two days with the bear. Now, a wildlife photographer in North Carolina, this photographer's name is Chris Norcott, actually believes that this story could be true. Chris said that over the years, he has seen many behaviors which demonstrated that bears show concern and are very nurturing towards their own offspring, but sometimes towards other animals as well. Now, most people believe that if a bear, either real or fictional, helped Casey survive while he was scared and alone in the woods, then that's a beautiful thing. 
Since his return home, strangers and friends alike have sent Casey teddy bears to congratulate him on his safe return home. I'll bet he has a whole warehouse (laughs) of them. Right? But, you know, Paula, there are still some people who absolutely refuse to believe that Casey could have been rescued by a wild bear. In fact, some of those people think this mother bear theory is so ridiculous that they have gone to great lengths to try to argue what they believe actually nurtured Casey in the forest. Their theory is not a bear, but instead a Bigfoot. Of course, because why not? Why not? So that was just the Missing 411 documentary, the first one. That one focused on kids. There's another one called Missing 411 The Hunted, which is all hunters that went missing. And that one delves even further into like the possible paranormal aspect um they actually did have recordings um that were taken back in the 70s oh cool of a group of hunters who went to this camp every year and they experienced a lot of weird things but they had audio recordings of some creature making very scary creepy disturbing loud noises and then they had that recording listened to by like experts who Mm -hmm. said it's not fake It would have been impossible to fake. And based upon what we're hearing, this is like a creature that stands, you know, between seven and ten feet tall. It's much larger than a human. They're communicating in this. I mean, it was pretty interesting. And again, they go into a lot of stories of these, in those cases, it's adults who went missing and then were later found, you know, in places that have been searched or found in unusual ways. Like I said, they go missing like in clusters. Mm-hmm. So it's not like just this one cliff. Oh, this is a dangerous cliff. Everybody falls off this cliff. Be careful at the cliff. Right. But it's just like there's clusters in all these different areas where like all these people go missing. Not the exact same spot, but the area. People just go missing from this area a lot. Weird. Kind of thing. And then there'll be other areas where it just never happened. It's just very interesting. Each case has like this list of just think like the rock field isn't that weird like three of the cases we talked about today just have rock fields or the bodies were never found when they absolutely should have been Mm -hmm. or they were found you know in an area that was just really strange and when you put them all together it kind of does make you question is something else going on is something else out there right which i totally think is possible i do too 100 percent yeah Missing 411. Check it out. Like I said, there's a series of eight books that cover so many cases. I want to get the books. It's pretty interesting. It is very interesting. Everyone, thank you for listening. Check out our website for pictures and links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media and leave a comment. And remember, stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. Bye. Bye.